Welcome, everybody, to the Inside Angle podcast. This is Gordon Moore, and I'm speaking today with Paul Shanowski, who is the CMO and founder of SamePage. I met Paul when we were both in Michigan at the Michigan Center for Clinical Systems Improvement and had an opportunity to hear him speak about the research he's done and the things that interest him. And I was fascinated by that and I'm thrilled that he has the time to spend in conversation today and wanted to talk with you, Paul, about your work and same page and your research and the things which interest us both. So welcome. Great. Thank you, Gordon. It's a pleasure to be doing this. Terrific. So Paul, tell me, tell me about same page. What is that? SamePage is a software and services platform that helps to implement collaborative care in healthcare organizations. Essentially, we realized years ago when I was doing clinical trials, conducting clinical trials in collaborative care, first with depression and then moving it into addressing multi-condition populations, that this was, well, frankly, the, the future of medicine everything was pointing towards us. And I thought that this was a great opportunity. So I actually left academia and started this company, SamePage. We uh, have brought on uh, technologists, we've created a platform, and we provide training and implementation assistance to help organizations fully take on collaborative care and sustain it within their healthcare systems. And I'm going to describe collaborative care in a moment, but uh, that's what SamePage does. Excellent. And that was exactly where I wanted to go. So I know that there can be many interpretations of collaborative care, and you've done extensive research on this, and I'd love to hear some uh, of your thoughts on what is collaborative care. Sure. You know, we could probably think of collaborative care with, you know, capital C collaborative care and then small c collaborative care. I mean, if any of us think about those two words, um, you know, it certainly means care that's done collaboratively with a team. And I think that's an exciting trend that's happening in medicine. But really what we're talking about is collaborative care with capital C, I'd say. It's an evidence-based method that uh, if you look in the Cochrane meta-analyses and so on, there are now over 90 clinical trials that show the superiority of collaborative care for addressing depression and anxiety uh, compared to primary care. So essentially what collaborative care is, is a evidence-based system where we leverage the use of care managers and coaches on the front line, uh, as well as a case reviewer that's a psychiatrist Uh, who's overseeing cases but not necessarily seeing the patients. In fact, they rarely see patients. They're hearing about the cases, making treatment recommendations, and then the primary care doctor is apprised of uh, recommendations, suggestions, and that's provided on roughly a weekly basis. And the PCP of the patient, the psychiatrist, and the care manager essentially are working together to help to get the person who has depression within primary care into a good range in their depression and address other things. It's really an opportunity to provide biopsychosocial care because there's a, a tremendous amount of time that can be spent with the care manager between healthcare visits. And I'll just say, you know, we found that after many, many clinical trials, 
showing the efficacy of this, we decided that at some point that we would try to do this with multi-conditioned patients. In other words, segments of the population that are struggling, for example, with out-of-target diabetes, hypertension, obesity, and depression. And so we conducted a clinical trial here in Seattle at Group Health Cooperative, and we were successful in finding that we could treat what I call the ABCD, A1C, B, blood pressure, C, cholesterol, D, depression, which were our main outcomes. And it was very successful also in addressing quality of care and the cost of care was reduced. So we truly were able to achieve the triple aim. So, Paul, when you're describing the work at Group Health, it sounds like a behavioral health case meeting. And this, but when you're getting it into chronic care, it sounds much grander than that in terms of doing much more stuff. Is that similar to what some quality improvement folks are doing with co-located care? Is, is there a difference between that and collaborative care in the model you're describing? Yeah, great question. So it's different than co-located care. I have actually personally been a co-located psychiatrist in a diabetes clinic for 18 years. And uh, essentially, I'm sharing a space with a number of providers, but it's just me as a psychiatrist providing care to patients with diabetes in that clinic. And I send notes. I could be located in another space and the effect would be essentially the same. Whereas what we're doing is truly integrated care. It's collaborative in the sense that we're leveraging communication between the team and we have uh, on a a weekly basis what's called a systematic case review or we abbreviate it SCR. So systematic case review is really what I call the secret sauce. It's, It's really the thing that differentiates this from other programs and it really is a way to have a number of people working at the top of their license in the most cost-effective way. So we're leveraging the use of that psychiatrist. And and of course, now that we've moved to treating multiple chronic conditions, we also bring in an internist as well. So we have a PCP or an internist and a psychiatrist in the room, as well as a care manager or a number of care managers when we're reviewing caseloads. And um, I can talk more about that systematic case review process, but essentially that's what differentiates um, what we're doing from what co-located care would be. So that's interesting because when I think about care delivery models, we have a resource constraint in certainly in in behavioral health across the board. And uh, we also do sometimes in specialty care and in primary care. So with that resource constraint, I'm fascinated when I hear about models that can accelerate care delivery and can compress things in a way that's actually beneficial to care delivery and outcomes. And it sounds like this systematic case review process does that. Yes. Um, just just to give you some numbers on that. Uh, so for example, with our multi-condition collaborative care where we're treating depression in the context of out-of-target diabetes, we might see uh, a caseload might consist of 40 to 60 patients and we might review in a two-hour block with that psychiatrist in the room pretty much the whole caseload, 40 to 60 cases. And there's a method to the madness. So if people are going, how could you ever do that? Um, You know, I can certainly get into details about how that's done, but we've done it for years. And so you're leveraging the expertise of that psychiatrist to review the majority of those cases and getting them back into a non-depressed state while we're also treating the depression and so on. About 10% of those cases might need a diagnostic clarification. So in that case, that or another psychiatrist might see that 10% of the caseload. 
but still that's a, a way to really, really benefit from a method to leverage the expertise of a psychiatrist, as you said, at a time of scarcity of resources. And obviously you've studied this pretty deeply and over a long number of years. What are some of the outcomes that you can cite in terms of patient and population outcomes? So, you know, again, thinking broadly, we truly do achieve the triple aim. And essentially, we're able to address, you know, A1Cs, blood pressures, cholesterols, have a significant improvement in uh, those. And I can give you a link to the New England Journal paper where we published our outcomes looking at uh, A1C, blood pressure, like I said, LDL, also uh, PHQ9s, both looking at it continuously, but also in terms of number of, you know, percentage of people with reduced depression. But also we were able to reduce costs over time. We followed people in that trial for 24 months. But in another trial, a preceding trial that we did with people with depression and diabetes, we followed them for four years and we were able to find, believe it or not, a six to one ROI, return on investment. So in other words, for a cost of, I think it was roughly $543 for the time upfront that we spent with a care manager and for this case review. And remember, this isn't forever. It's a limited process to get someone in target. But what we found is four years later, and this is in 2006 dollars, we saved approximately $3,900 over time. So it was, it was roughly a six to one cost savings over time. And where do those cost savings come from? Well, it's not happening. Yeah. So it's really um, the usual culprits. It's, you know, if we think of costs, there's, of course, total cost to care. But if we look at there's, you know, there's radiology, pharmacy, uh, outpatient and inpatient visits. And when we think of these individuals, they're primary care patients who happen to have depression. The savings aren't on mental health hospitalizations being reduced. It's actually reducing medical health care utilization and uh, ED visits. We don't have a transitional care component in here that we necessarily label transitional care, but essentially we are providing transitional care, really paying attention to the patient's needs and staving off emergency department visits. In a recent implementation after our clinical trials, we found that we were able to reduce emergency department visits by 50% with this program. Can you give me like an anecdote around an undisclosed patient type that would help explain this? Sure. So uh, imagine someone, say uh, Mrs. Jones, she's in her 50s. She has diabetes that's out of target, hypertension that's out of target, LDL that's out of target. She's a little depressed and she has a number of other chronic conditions. In fact, when we selected patients, I'll just say when we select patients on A1C out of target, blood pressure out of target, and depression, we end up having patients who have on average nine chronic conditions, which is astounding. So these are people that are definitely overwhelmed with a number of chronic conditions and medications that they have to take. So let's imagine Mrs. Jones is also a smoker. She's, you know, because of her depression, she's not functioning optimally. She has worries about her work and and relationships. And frankly, she feels like just giving up. And uh, despite her going to her healthcare provider even six times a year, Sadly, she cannot get her A1C blood pressure and cholesterol in target. This, this is what we call the bundled benchmark. And in our country, only about 19% of all patients with diabetes get those three in target. So she's languishing. She's struggling. And the, the truth is that despite her six visits, the focus is primarily on medical issues. 
and doesn't even touch on her distress around her job. Uh, Certainly uh, hard to even start to address her depression. And so by layering on, and I, I like to use that term, we're layering on, we're not replacing the PCP. In fact, we're working weekly with the PCP. This is not a silo. Uh, we're layering on that care management that's guided by the expertise of the psychiatrist and an internist to make one to three recommendations weekly that the primary care provider knows will be coming. And then essentially on a weekly or biweekly basis, that's the cadence, we make changes. We don't just talk about them. We actually make them. And we are sure that to reconcile and ensure that those action items are completed. That's part of our job as of systematic case review. So Mrs. Jones now, instead of seeing her provider every two or three months, has 12 touch points, uh, 15-minute phone calls or face-to-face visits with a care manager who's uh, helping to manage part of her issues. And the elephant in the room, of course, is the untreated depression. And we know that untreated depression in the context of -of out-of-target diabetes can lead to two to three times higher health care costs. Wow. So... By that, 12 touch points, that's what reduces then the emergency utilization. I've heard you describe something called clinical inertia in the past, and, and you guys take that hut on. Could you explain what that is and how you get at it? Yeah, you know, I, I love this concept. So clinical inertia is defined as a lack of treatment intensification in, in a patient not at evidence-based goals for care. It's a major factor that contributes to inadequate chronic disease care in people with diabetes, hypertension, you know, the very things that we're focusing on and many other chronic conditions. And essentially what it is, I like to think of it as the clinical mirror image of what we might call poor compliance or to use a more modern term, non-adherence, whatever term you want to use in patients. So think about a patient. We know our patients very well. We know that it's not because of lack of intent. They, they want to get better. They want to follow things, but they have tremendous competing demands in their lives. They have various other issues. Uh, they may be depressed, stressed, overwhelmed. Well, guess what? Look at a healthcare system or a healthcare provider. <laughs> we have competing demands. We're stressed. We don't have enough time. It's really an, a mirror image of it. And so clinical inertia is I, I joke that, you know, I start my talks by saying there's a, there's a disorder sweeping the nation. It's in your healthcare system too. And that disorder is an institutional disorder called clinical inertia because that is really the basis for why we continue to get poor outcomes and why the CDC continues to show that only 19% of people achieve that bundled benchmark in diabetes. We have great intentions all of us, we, we want patients to get better, and they have great intentions too, but we don't make timely and appropriate changes with patients given if we do one person, one visit every two to three months. So in this case, then, the systematic case review gets together. They look over what's happening with this person and comes up with one to three recommendations, sends those back to the PCP. And because of the cadence happening every week, every other week, that begins to overcome the clinical inertia? Absolutely. And I'll tell you, Gordon, I've been a clinician for over 25 years. I have never participated in more rewarding clinical work than this because the changes are rapid. You are working with a team. Just imagine shrinking that cadence down to a week or biweekly where you're making changes happen that usually take three to six months. 
you start to see resolution of depression, you start to see behavioral changes around you know, treatment for their chronic conditions, and the person starts to feel better, not just because of the resolving depression, but because physiologically they start to feel better and their self-efficacy improves. It's just phenomenal, the experience. So one thing that occurs to me, I can imagine uh, PCP doing their work might feel put upon, affronted or something. What's been the experience of the PCPs you're working with? Very aware of that possibility. So when we work with healthcare systems, one of the things that we do is, first of all, we want to make sure that nobody's blindsided by this process. So we ensure that we do, we even do roadshows or I help the, the leadership and, and clinicians do roadshows. So we go to the clinics where we're going to be working. We provide them with the clinical trial information and so on, the evidence behind this, and remind them what to expect. That, look, we're not here to pull out Harrison's textbook and look up some esoteric treatment recommendation that you wouldn't have thought of. Anything that we recommend, you would have thought of. It's, it's just that we have more touch points. We're on your team, and essentially what we're doing is we're actively measuring things like the PHQ-9 and blood pressure on a weekly basis, telegraphing that information to you with a built-in recommendation. And again, it's not anything that you wouldn't have thought of probably yourself, but we're just um, ensuring that it happens and we're providing you the resources to divide and conquer and ensure that it happens. So when we frame it that way, the PCPs don't feel like we're being critical or criticizing them or judging their actions, and they actually welcome it. They go, oh my gosh, I can think of five patients that could benefit from this. And they actually welcome that email or secure message once a week that has one to three action items, many of which we're going to take on anyway. The doc just needs to know about it. But sometimes there's treatment titrations, medication titrations, and so on. And um, believe me, most family docs love having a curbside psychiatric consultation, which is essentially what they're getting on a weekly basis. Some recommendations from a psychiatrist who's overseeing the case, who knows what their most recent PHQ-9 is, and they might make a recommendation about a treatment augmentation, uh, you know, adding a second antidepressant, titrating a med. They love it. And, and same goes for recommendations about timely medical changes as well. Yeah, I, I can actually imagine that this also lines up with a number of the measures that are being brought to bear with clinicians and health systems right now, uh, HEDIS indicators and other quality measures around A1C and yep. completion rates. So that would obviously benefit them if you're Absolutely. helping to shoulder some of the load. And you mentioned before the lasting effect where this, even though your, your intervention is limited, that there's a tail effect that seems to stretch quite long? Yes. So... Because it's multidimensional, the treatment, the intervention is multidimensional, and we are helping with behavior change, we're helping with skills, we're helping the patient with changing their life, not just treating the depression with a pill necessarily, but helping them with behavioral activation and problem-solving skills for their depression, and similarly for diabetes, helping them with self-management. We also help with relapse prevention plans. What we find is that the effects persist. You know, one, one trial that we did, it was an in-home trial of individuals, frail older adults that had depression and five chronic conditions on average. In that trial, after six months, the active treatment, we got five times as much remission from depression compared to usual care. 
and the results persisted into 12 months and in another similar trial into 18 months without any further treatment after six months. So there's a learning effect because of the clinical skills building that we provide to the patients. I imagine that there's got to be a pretty strong link between the inverse of that, which is the learned helplessness and hopelessness that many people with chronic conditions experience. Oh, indeed. You know, the study that I was just talking about, the frail older adults that were often isolated in their homes, they'd had many losses in their lives, they'd lost their own function, and they had tremendous number of of conditions. They had no confidence. They'd lost all confidence. And so it was more than just depression. Even when we treated their depression, we used uh, problem-solving treatment, which is an evidence-based method of helping patients to develop confidence again in mastery in activities in their lives. And that led to so much improvement and, and really helped with addressing that learned helplessness that you speak of. The kinds of patients you talk about, or, or people to be more uh, broad, sure. are individuals who have a significant number of conditions, including depression and other issues. Is what you're describing useful only to people with that very high illness burden? How far down do you go in terms of single conditions, uh, mild depression with no other chronic conditions? Is it is it valuable even in that context? Yes, I liken it to uh, learning to drive. I was teaching my daughter uh, how to drive, and she learned on a automatic, but then tried to <laughs> learn to drive a, a stick shift or a you know standard. And once she learned that, an automatic was much easier. So I, I liken you know as a metaphor to this. What we're doing is learning to drive on the a more challenging system. Uh, we have much more complexity here. And it's just a no-brainer that we can help with, say, depression only, which is really the original basis for the model where we didn't focus on comorbidities. But at some point, we recognized that there was a great need to address those comorbidities, again, from a system perspective because of the costs. And uh, from a clinical perspective, these individuals that languish if we don't address the comorbidities as well as the depression at the same time. So, and just to finish on that point, so originally we had the depression-only collaborative care and then depression and anxiety. Then we moved it with our uh, clinical trial into diabetes, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, depression. And now some systems are saying, you know, we're interested in using the same method for our diabetes quality improvement initiative. We're going to use it mostly for diabetes. So you can target any single condition or multiple conditions with this. So as I, I look at health plan and claims data a lot as mm-hmm. a resource for thinking about the segment of populations who are suffering from significant illness burden, usually two or more significant chronic conditions of higher severity, and therefore much more likely to be hospitalized and end up in the emergency department. And as we think about how to bring resources to bear, a lot of what you're describing are the exact resources that I think about in terms of healthy behavior change, in terms of flipping the learned helplessness and hopelessness and and expanding the capacity of an individual to self-manage more effectively. And what I loved in hearing your model was that you are doing exactly that using a very simple intervention with the systematic case review that then feeds back into the regular healthcare delivery system to just accelerate what they're doing and enhance it using skills and techniques that may not be native to the individual PCP, but are easily layered on through this collaborative care model. 
Yes. That, I, that, that when I heard that, I thought that was, that was brilliant. And I also love the fact that you have published extensively on this. And I am eager to have those links so that we sure. can put them up with the podcast oh, yeah. and share those with, uh, with our listeners. What we can do is we can put up links to some of the clinical trials. And then there's a PDF that I can share that shows the components of collaborative care and describes the five or six key components as well. But back to your point, again, primary care docs have to manage a number of conditions and depression and so on. And again, the issue is that, you know, often there's competing demands, lack of time, lack of information, and lack of skills and resources. All of these things conspire to make it very difficult. So so we, we really do have to layer on these added resources in a highly coordinated way. And it's not forever. What we find is that on average, it's about 17 to 24 weeks in the populations that I was describing, where we're managing A1C, blood pressure, cholesterol, and depression. Within 17 to 24 weeks, we can get most patients in a caseload in target. And then we move them into maintenance mode. That is fascinating. Paul, that is a terrific model. I think our guests are going to love it and uh, hope that they have an opportunity to review the articles and be in touch with SamePage. Great. I want to thank you so much for your time today. It's been a real pleasure, and I look forward to further conversations, and I hope that this has helped people understand you know, the real promise of collaborative care. For Inside Angle, this is Gordon Moore. You can find more podcast episodes at www.3m.com. Dot 3m hisinsideangle.com